This is Top Landing Gear. Hello and welcome to Top Landing Gear Full Flaps and our full-length interview with BizJet pilot Mark Blois-Brook. Now, Roy and I met up with him at his operating base of Farnborough in Hampshire, formerly, of course, home of the Royal Aircraft Establishment, and now the largest business aviation airport in the UK. Now, Mark's life as a pilot has been almost entirely in the business aviation sector, which has thrown up some unique challenges and extraordinary stories, some of which he shared with us in one of the most immaculate aircraft hangars we'd ever set foot in. Well, Roy and I have come to Farnborough. Uh, of course, it's a, an airfield steeped in aviation history. Now it's an incredibly busy bizjet uh, centre, and we've been joined by Mark Blois Brook. Unusual name. We might get onto that later. But Mark is a bizjet pilot. And Mark, we met first of all because you very kindly took me flying out of White Waltham uh, at the end of last year, or earlier this year, in a Piper Cherokee. Uh, yes, we did. Had a lovely day. We went uh, just just around the local area, as yeah. far as I recall. It was a, it was a gorgeous day, wasn't it? Clearly. So, yeah. Can you yeah. remember how well or otherwise I did? It was phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> I was it, was, it, was, it was phenomenally good. <laughs> Thank you very much. I mean, well, we he, got, oh, you we got, got back in one piece, didn't we? Sir? Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, he, he let yeah. me do quite a lot of, of approaches, but would always take over just before we hit the ground. Wh- wh- white knuckles. No, <laughs> yeah. I don't recall that way. It, it was fine. It was fine. <laughs> But Mark, your, in fact, your aviation career pretty much began at White Waltham, I think, as, as a flying instructor, didn't it? Uh, yes, it, it pretty much did. Um, so I got to fly at White Waltham after coming back from the States. I'd done a bit of flying out there. So this was in 1978, 79. Yeah. Introduced to White Waltham by uh, my brother-in-law, whose cousin had been there as an engineer or something. So uh, bowled up once on February afternoon and got introduced to the chief flying instructor, Morris Looker, and... Uh, Said, have you got a job? Because I had a flying instructor's license. And he said, yeah, start money. So that was it. What a way to start. And uh, just some of the story, you've written this brilliant book called Life in a Tin, which is basically your life story in flying. Some of the stories in there are wonderful. And the one or two really good ones from White Waltham, uh, some of which I can't remember. I do remember someone flying over the tin roof with their undercarriage hitting the roof was quite was a game that you well, that, that was that was a that, sort of apocryphal story for Morris Looker because mm. um, this will predate my time there but he was before he retired he was a flying instructor himself, or chief flying instructor yeah. of the club and they used to have air cadets RF air cadets and they still do I think uh, and these air cadets used to live in the, in the sort of back of the clubhouse had a corrugated tin roof and Morris Looker to wake them up in the morning he used to get in his Oster and run the wheels of his type, uh, sorry of his Oster along the corrugated I mean you can imagine the run. this is airborne yeah airborne <laughs> <laughs> all these cadets would spill out of bed horrified <laughs> terrified so you can, you can imagine what that was like so that's uh, yeah that was Morris yeah. Looker he was old school yeah yeah but your stories are amazing because they are also old school before an awful lot of legislation was brought in at least I would guess so your first sort of commercial job was as an air taxi pilot yeah uh, how did yeah. you get into that so so i basically did what, what's called the self-improver route which has been closed off for, for years now you have to do approved courses and all the rest of it but back in the day you could get um uh, a flying instructor rating and then instruct without a commercial license just instruct on a ppl and a flying instructor rating get your 700 hours which was required for the commercial license get your licenses and away so, so that was the way. That was the route then. And my first job, having left uh, White Waltham, was uh, with a company called Chesswing, now long expired, uh, which was an air taxi company. So I got a break, luckily, because things were pretty bad then. In the sort of, when was that? End of beginning of nineteen eighty, things were pretty mm-hmm. bad economically. But I got a job with Chesswing, uh, and I was chuffed to get it because it was you know, a flying two, a really nice aircraft. I was flying Barons and. Cessna 421s, which was just great. So, the result, so these are all twin-engine... Yeah, twin-engine uh, air taxi um, yeah. aircraft, really. And it's a great way to learn the business because you scare yourself stupid. Because <laughs> um, you're, you're flying, you know, let's face it, fairly underperforming aircraft in all weathers on your own. Uh, it's, a great, it's a great way to learn the, the trade, I think. Mm. And in some ways, I say in the book, I think guys who go straight onto EasyJet now, whatever, I'm a great, good luck to them, straight onto big jet equipment, but... Boy, you miss a lot of stuff. Yeah, um, but I mean, you've done. You sound like an old, old fogey when you say, but you know, well, I, th- I think it's genuinely true. And a yeah. lot of guys, you know, 
tend to agree with that. Yeah. I think, what, that you're an old fogey? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> Ask my kids. But you've done, <laughs> you've done real flying and, and lots of it. I mean... I, the first time I sort of became aware of air taxis was reading Dick Francis novels. Because yes. he, I think he was a pilot. Yeah, very, yeah, absolutely. He loved yeah, writing about this. Yeah. And, and it seemed that the air taxi really just existed to take jockeys to various meetings around the country. Well, I did a lot of that as well. Did you? So, yeah. what, what, can I just ask, what yeah. is an air taxi? It well, air, air taxi is, is basically uh, just that. So, you know, if, if you want to go somewhere, you don't want to take a train or drive, you'd phone up the local flying club or whoever it is and ask if they've got an aircraft to take you there. And if right. they're licensed to do that... Um, then away you go. So I used to take jockeys around uh, race courses because uh, you know they used helicopters a lot, obviously. But if they didn't, then they'd use like a light aircraft, and they were great because they're the guys. They probably tipped the best. I don't, you know, I've never been tipped anywhere else <laughs> other than with jockeys, you know, or, or jockeys' friends because they do well on, on the horses. They'll drop you fifty quid, which in nineteen seventy eighty was a lot of money. So you know, th- th- and it was great fun. I, so, I still think 50 quid is a lot of money these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So how would you, how would your timetable work on a sort of weekly basis? Was it completely ad hoc and you were just waiting at your cab rank? <laughs> well, <laughs> waiting for n- not exactly, because the Chesswing actually was an uh, aircraft management company as well. So we managed these three aircraft for a caravan company. <laughs> so the, the bread and butter of the, of, the, of the job was to take these uh, sort of caravan salesmen around various caravan sites around the UK, which meant going to very sort of weird places, disused airfields and stuff you could never do these days and just yeah. drop in where you could. They'd disappear for a few hours, come back, and then you go off to another site and, and all that. But fitting in amongst all that, we did um, a bit of air taxi as well, so it'd be a bit of both. It was a really good mixture. Interesting. So, what, um, what were some of your most interesting destinations or maybe even passengers um, from that period? The, the passengers... Uh, when was I doing this? I was doing this in 1984, which is the 40th anniversary of D-Day. So I did a lot of flights down to um, down to Caen in, in Normandy uh, with I'm trying to think who I took now. People like Selena Scott and oh. people like that, and Frank Boff and people, you know, people like yeah. that, uh, which was which was really good fun. And that was actually one of the stories with I remember this guy, the US Marine Corps helicopter couldn't get response from Paris information. You know, this guy just got off the USS Nimitz, parked offshore off Normandy <laughs> Beach, yeah. and is in his helicopter with, I suppose it would have been Reagan, trying to get through to Paris, he's just completely blanking. They wouldn't answer at all. And then somebody says, they'll never answer you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy, American guy says, yeah, I guess that's true. So he just does his own thing. But um, wow. So, yeah, so trips like that, which are always great. Did one to Arnhem uh, with some guys who were in the Paris during the war. Again, I think it was the 40th anniversary of that. So stuff like that was, yeah. Oh. I did actually, I was part of the BBC team who did the 50th anniversary of D-Day. And we actually did go out on a Piper Seneca, I think, from, it was either Elstree or Denham. Right. I think Denham, out to an airfield near Pegasus Bridge. And, oh, and then the, So that was a little air taxi yeah. jaunt, the yeah, only exactly. time I've ever yeah. done it. It was me, the producer, and another producer. And it was basically a freebie. I, there was no need to go at all, but he thought that it would, it would be useful for me to see where I was going to be stationed yeah. on the day of the broadcast. But yeah. it was brilliant. So, yeah, that's the kind of thing you do. And, and we had sort of... The pilot had provided tea, a flask of tea. Yeah, it's all pretty, it's all pretty basic. I'm trying to think back now, but it's all pretty basic. So you have, like, a thermos, which you've got to be really careful about opening in flight. But anyway, a thermos of tea, <laughs> right. maybe a little bar box in a cool box or something, yeah. some sandwiches. It was all pretty basic. And they're all jammed in the back. I mean, talk about a leap of faith. They're all sitting in the back of this little aeroplane, and I've taken. I mean, I would never do that, but then don't seem to think twice about it. But we survived. But, but th- uh, that's the interesting. Well, one of the interesting things is that you're not just the pilot. You're also the kind of you know you're the chauffeur. You're also the you're also providing everyone with their with their catering. What entertainment? I mean, you're a bit more than just the guy who's flying the airplane. Yeah, at that level, well, I suppose we are at this level as well, you know, on, on the jets. But it's it's that, it's all pretty basic, and, and they most most of the passengers know what they're getting. You get what you pay yeah. for, and they all muck in, and it's fine. Yeah. So yeah. I, I've never had a bad experience with anybody because no. you know they can't they can't. You have to manage expectations in this business a lot, but. When you've got no expectations in the first place, it's easy. So in some ways, air taxi days were easier than the sort of corporate stuff we do now. Yeah. You say you've never had any bad experiences, but reading your book, it seems that you worked for, mix- for some fairly dodgy operators flying some slightly dodgy aircraft with even dodgier clientele. The guy who you met at Biggin Hill, I think, carrying a briefcase and nothing else, it was at night... 
And you took him oh, to, God, yeah, that, that, to Spain. That, that, yeah, no, no, that was actually to... to uh, that was another occasion. No, this one was to take this guy who... Um, uh, just just on a, a, a building society in Hastings, as it turned out. When you say just done, he just held it up. Well, I mean, basically, got, got this, we got this call. On, <laughs> I got got this call at home. Get to the airport now. Get in the airplane. Go to the South End. Pick up this guy uh, and take him to Rotterdam or Amsterdam. I can't remember. Oh, right. Amsterdam, I think it was. Yeah. So I said, okay. And the boss of the company said he'll pay in cash. So fine. So I, I get to the South End and meet this guy who's carrying nothing but a briefcase and a teddy bear, which seems very suspicious to me. But, and we do all, everything properly. We go through customs, immigration, get him on the aeroplane, fly across the North Sea into Amsterdam. I sort of escort him through customs, immigration, and say bye, and that's it. I fly home. Uh, the next day, the boss phones me up and says, did he pay you? I said, and I could tell in his voice, it wasn't happy about it. Did he pay you? I said, yeah, he paid me whatever it was, the 800 quid. I can't remember what it was. Um, he said, well, get it in the bank fast because it's, it's hot money. So I said, well, so I said, well what, what do you mean? It, 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 is it dodgy? He said, very. The guy's just done uh, building society in Hastings for 20 grand. So um, anyway, so, and the boss of the company was a little bit fly by night anyway. So um, he didn't want the law breathing down his neck. Anyway, the next day, uh, a detective from Vine Street Police Station phoned me up and said, would you mind coming in for a chat? And I think, oh, God, how I? And I sort of go back and I think, I'm sure I've done everything properly. I didn't miss anything. I filed a flight, but I did everything above board. And they accepted that. Uh, and I told them what happened, and they said, fine, we'll pick him up. And they did. Yeah. They picked him up a couple of days. Winterpol picked him up a couple of days later. Yeah. But I, the funny thing was, going through immigration in Amsterdam, you'd think... I mean, what is more suspicious in a, in a sort of drugs capital, can you say <laughs> drugs capital of the world, you know, with a, a, a teddy bear and a briefcase? I, I'd have, if I was a customs officer, I'd have been... Anyway, they didn't. Did he still have his firearm with him? Presumably he no, did. No, he didn't have... No, no, I don't think he so. He chucked that, had he? He probably chucked out the door. Of what, I don't know. <laughs> but well, I did look back in flight, and he had the briefcase open and was looking inside his briefcase, and obviously he was just counting his money, I, I guess. Sort of gave me a wave and I looked back because I'm on my own and yeah, he's in the yeah. back, so you just let him get on with it, don't you? What, what plane were you flying? Uh, that was a what was that? That was a, a Baron. So you got, uh, you, I sit up the front, two seats at the front, then you got this little Club Four arrangement at the back. Yeah. And he was just sitting in the back there counting his money. But that was just was, one of many dodgy clients you seem to have flown around in your time, Mark. I don't know what that says about you <laughs> well, or the organisations you work for. <laughs> the, the other one was, to, it's, it's always regional airports. The way to do this, it seems, is to find a regional airport on a wet Friday afternoon because no one's interested in what goes on, you know, yeah. especially in those days. And some other guys were, I took out of Exeter down to Madrid uh, who had just done some fraud, massive fraud in Edinburgh or something. <laughs> But at the end of the day, you know, you're in the clear. Well, I'm in the clear because you follow everything that's necessary. Yeah. You know, you go through all the checks and you file the flight and do all the right stuff. Uh, so you're in the clear. But, you know, the next day when you realise what you've done. <laughs> <laughs> but didn't they it's always... <clears throat> Sorry. I was just saying, sometimes you think, wow, I got away with that one. You know, but they got away with that one. Because yeah, in those yeah. days, going to Spain, there was no extradition. So ah. it was the place of choice, wasn't it? Yeah. Costa del yeah, Crime yeah. and all the rest of it. So, yeah. you know, if you can get an aircraft to take... And I remember that particular one out of Exeter... They were sort of very happy when the wheels were tucked away and we're on our way because they knew they were safe then, you know, unless I had to come back for some reason. But they're gone, and they've gone to yeah. Spain. They're probably still there. I, I, I don't know. I, I, did but, you so. ever sense that you were helping some, you know, a dodgy crook to, to get oh, away? Yeah. I mean, yes, <laughs> quite often. Well, you, see, you think it does... Both of those occasions, uh, there are probably a couple of others as well, I can't recall now, but both of those occasions, they're unusual, let's be honest. Yeah. You know, why are they such a pressing hurry to get out of the country on a wet Friday afternoon? Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, interesting. Has that changed Funny. much since you then... You then progressed to, to the jets, if that's a progression. Um, and so flying these fabulous corporate jets that we are surrounded by in the hangar here at Farnborough. Has, has the clientele also got shinier? As well as the aeroplane? Yeah, well, those days I described, this is back in the 80s, all this stuff, and I don't think it really exists now. I don't think it can exist. There's no. far too many checks and balances now for, for that kind of thing to go on. So uh, I'm, I'm sure guys would prove me wrong. They've got some great stories, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, but I can't think it would, uh, it would really go... Um, you couldn't possibly way. say. And also I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> you might think so, but I couldn't yeah, possibly exactly. comment. But there's some great stories you tell of when you were flying the Learjet, which, which I, you yeah. loved flying that aircraft. Oh, it's gorgeous, yeah. yeah. Um, 
and it just seemed to be someone... Well, I said it's gorgeous, it's got love and hate, but yeah, oh, really? most, mostly gorgeous. Why, why, why is that? Well, the, the Learjet is, is, you know, the legendary aircraft, isn't yeah. it? let's be honest, yeah. and it's, it's fabulous in some ways. I mean, it's built out of steel, and it's got tremendous performance, and, and, but operating, it's, it's flying and operating, they're two completely different things. <laughs> so flying it, it performance-wise, and, and to handle it, lovely. Operating it, a nightmare, because it's very old-fashioned. Oh. So, um, you know, the air conditioning was terrible, the refueling was archaic, yeah. and stuff like that. But, uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's an iconic aircraft, and to most people... Every business jet is a Learjet. Yes, I mean, that was like, the, that's right. That was the original it, it, It's the iconic... Jet, and it was the original... Well, not quite. Lockheed, Lockheed beat it with their jet star, but okay. almost. Yeah, yeah, right at the beginning of sort of corporate jet stuff. Yeah. It's like to most people in the street, every airline is a jumbo or whatever. You have these iconic <laughs> yes. jets, don't you? So yeah. uh, the Lear ticks that one off. And yeah, it was great. I had some great trips on that one. Well, and some fairly hairy ones too. I mean, a lot of <clears throat> what, African destinations, airports that weren't yeah, really Yeah, I, I, I love Africa, run. but boy, it, it can test you at times. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that incident you're probably referring to in, in Nigeria is one I could, could have done with that. Um, but, um, but, so, can you remind us about that? Uh, this was... Um, it's sort of, I guess, mid-90s. Early 90s. We used to go to Nigeria a lot because uh, we did a lot of medevac stuff, so bringing people back, you know, who are ill and stuff, which is, which is great. Um, and on this occasion, we got there, uh, and as always, you know, you, you ask for prior permission to get there, they never reply, so you go and you wing it, and you get to the FIR border, and you give your Tesco's card number as permission or whatever. You know, you just wing it, and you land, and then you dash everybody appropriately, and you go to the hotel, and that's it. But on this, this particular occasion that got a bit scary, um, we, we, we landed and did all the right stuff, dashed everybody, got in the taxi, and there'd just been a change of government. So Babangida, who was the president, had been the president for a long time, had gone, some other chap had taken over. And whenever there's a change of government in Nigeria, things, the old rules kind of don't apply. So whereas you used to go through the security gate as you left the airport, give them you know, 200 cigarettes and a bottle of whiskey, and they were happy... It was different. So we get to the security gate, and there's four guys there with guns, and uh, you, just, you can just tell that they're looking for trouble or they're drunk or something. You, you, you know, your sense is, is bad. So they say, they stop the car, sticks his head in, says, I want dollars. I said, well, we've got, we got your Johnny Walker, we've got your cigarettes. He says, no, I want dollars. And, he's, you know, he's looking, he's eyeballing me. So then he says, right, follow me. And he waves us off the road. So we then go down this dirt track... So we're now off the beaten beaten path, if you like. There's no road signs or anything. And with these guys who want... Because they know we're carrying dollars, because crew are always carrying dollars. So he says, I want your dollars. And the guy I'm flying with says, you're not having my money. I said, mate, if he wants your dollars, give him the dollars. Because, you know, I, I want to get back in one piece. Because things can get out of hand really fast. And you could disappear without being too dramatic about it. So eventually I got through to him that we were there on the express orders of the president. We weren't. But um, express orders of the president, and so better that, you know, you let us go and let us go to our hotel and take the cigarettes and, and uh, whiskey and, and let us go, uh, which eventually he did. But it was a scary moment because, you know, when guys are all kind of drunk and looked a little bit drugged up as well and yeah. there's guns around and you're off the beaten track, I mean, anything could happen. Yeah. So it's no time for heroics. I said, I'll just give, take what he wants, I don't care. But it I mean, seems... <laughs> I'm not, not going to be a dead hero. What's the <laughs> no, point? <Grant. laughs> there are a lot of stories a bit like this in your book. And it just made me think, if you're a biz jet pilot doing corporate stuff so, and all these kind of journeys, it's so different from being a commercial airline pilot. I mean, you don't have these kind of adventures that you've had. Maybe not everyone wants to go through that, but... Well, no, but, I mean, they're not unique. I mean, most guys, I mean, lots of guys have similar stories, or worse. You ask anyone who's phoning Papua New Guinea or something, they've got stories that are probably, you know, more scary. Um, but you're right. I mean, that, that's, this is the stuff that you do is kind of cut and thrust of this side of the business, because in airlines, this just wouldn't happen. So, uh, and it's what most guys get a kick out of, is, you know, we, we fly to the same rules as airlines. It's all AOC stuff, you know, it's all um, scrutinised by the CAA, was even in my day, but mm. even more so now. But we used to lose stuff. <laughs> you know, flights were a bit iffy, we lost the paperwork. Yes. But you can't really do that now. But, so, you know, we fly to the same rules as airlines, but the actual flying is completely different. Yeah, yeah. Of course it is, yeah. But, but going back to those earlier days, were you kind of just constantly just paid in cash as the guy or whoever they were left the plane? I mean, was it not Couldn't possibly formal? <laughs> It was well, it's, more formal. No, it was, it was kind of, it was more formalised than that. Normally it was cash up front, obviously. You know, you, the, the, whoever wanted to hire the jet would pay up front. Yeah. Sometimes um, 
they, I mean, that, that occasion when I took those debt collectors down to Malaga, I think it was. Yeah. And the boss said, get the money before you come back. And said, I'm no way I'm asking these guys for money. <laughs> There's absolutely no way. <laughs> you know, because they, they were horrible. So yeah. we, we took them down to Malaga. They disappeared for three hours uh, and came back a bit, looking a bit dishevelled. I think they'd got, I don't know what they'd done to the guy that owed the money. But, and then I phoned the, called the boss up on the HF, which is the long range radio. And he says, before we get back, make sure we get the money off them. And I said, you can ask them, mate. I, mean, I have nothing to do with these guys. They're horrible. And you never got... I, I, and I don't think the, the boss ever got paid for that flight. No. no. But that was just a bad debt. Yeah. But he was very switched on. It's very rare that that happened. Yeah. But, um, I mean... It's, it, so it's, 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 it's fun and games. I, I, well, yeah. I mean, it's exciting. I'm sure it takes a certain sort of person to do this. I mean, it's, it's real adventure flying. I mean, we have an airline pilot on the podcast, as you know, James, yeah. who flies 777s. Uh, he sent a few questions in. We don't oh, know where he okay. is. Yeah. How do you become a BizJet pilot, please? He'd like um, to know. <laughs> <laughs> Tell him to apply. Um, how do you become... Well, it, it's just another... It's another course. It's another avenue, isn't it? So yeah. um, I, I suppose most, guy, most guys who do this job have been ex-airline at some point and either get fed up with it or want to go back, in my case, go back to what they did before. So you yeah. do the airline stuff and it's great, don't get me wrong, but they kind of miss the cut and thrust of... Um, you know, what, what we do in, in corporate aviation. So, But w- once you've got the licence, you can either apply to become a business pilot or we can apply to go to the airlines. It's entirely up to you. Okay. Having said that, most guys who fly biz jets, you know, you can't sell a pilot to a, a rich owner unless he's pretty experienced. They don't want a guy who's just got his licence yeah. because they want experienced pilots. So um, it's quite difficult to, to sell a guy, however good you think he is, if he hasn't got quite a bit of experience. So a lot of guys are... are, are Corporate pilots now are ex airline. Okay, and that, that, they're really good products. They got the discipline yeah. that's required from the airlines, but they want to get back to this kind of flying. So, how do they regard you then, who hasn't come through the airlines? <laughs> well, no, I've just got lucky. <laughs> As I say, it's better to be lucky than good. So, uh, but yeah, that was. But I, I had a different route, didn't I? So, mm. um, yeah, so it was just different then. So, you're flying the Falcon, the Dassault Falcon. I'm flying now for uh, Falcon Seven X. Yeah, for Tag yeah. Aviation. Yeah. So, how does that actually work? So, you talked about owners wanting, you know, they choose their their pilots. It, 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 this aircraft that you fly is is owned by a company rather than an individual, and is that then chartered to different clients? Uh, no, no, it's not. It it, this particular one is completely private. Uh, it's managed by Tag Aviation, so oh, right. it, Tag, like a lot of companies, is just a management company. So we manage aircraft for individuals and companies, and this is just one of the aircraft we have under management. Uh, and so I've been flying this particular one for about yeah, just gone five years. Um, and it's not chartered, it's completely private. Mm. Uh, the owners, some owners want to charter, get some money back, some don't, these guys don't, so that's fine, we just fly them around. Uh, and a lot of it's to do with their own tax arrangements, they get tax breaks if they do this, you know, it's, mm. it's very complex business. Mm. But in, in my case, this one is just private. So which, which in, a, the... in, a, in a way, it's a shame, because I actually love charter, mm. a lot of guys don't, but owner flying, it tends to be very predictable. You uh-huh. go to the same places all the time with the same passengers, which is fine, but... I really miss, like, you know, okay, in three days' time, you're going to Belize or whatever it is, you know. Stuff like that is much more, to me, is more challenging. Yeah. A lot of guys don't like it, but I do. But that's still corporate flying, is it? Yeah, I mean, you you can call it corporate flying, it's hard, you can define it how you like, really. Mm. Uh, I suppose corporate flying is technically flying for a company, isn't it? I would suppose, but... Um, but it's, you know these definitions are a little bit loose. Yeah. So are you applied... Sorry. Are you employed on a salary or does it depend on how much no no it's just a salary just like uh, airline yeah. or anything else it, it's salaried but I you're mean, the you beck and call of the owner as to when yes when you fly yes. so yeah. you can't get completely rat ass one night rat be well <laughs> you know as if <laughs> <laughs> and then you might get a call the no, next no, morning no, no, we need um, you at the airfield in no, two no, no. hours actually the, these uh, owners vary obviously but the, these guys are fantastic they always give us two or three days notice okay um, not to sober up. <laughs> but just two or three days' notice, and, and, and it's fine. And, and the flying we do is, is mostly European at the moment, so that, that's absolutely fine. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. I mean, to me, two hours for lunch is perfect. That's yeah. enough, is it? Yeah. So how often are you out at the moment? Uh, at the moment, um, we fly probably four, three to four times a month, sometimes five times a month. Um, and, and as I said, as we wandered through the hangar, you know, these aircraft, all, all these business aircraft, they are very underused. So, uh, you know, three, four hundred hours a year is a busy aircraft. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, airlines will do three, four thousand hours a year. So wow. it's completely different. Uh, but that you know, they sit on the hangar. They're beautifully polished. They're immaculately looked after. Yeah, we are. Um, we are sat now in an office overlooking the second hangar. Uh, which is they're beautiful, aren't they? You could eat your, you could eat your dinner off the floor. <laughs> yes, you could. There are two jets in each enormous hangar, which looks like a film set, and yeah. they look like, they look brand new. The first thing you said when we walked into the hangar was just like being in a Bond film. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's like a lair, but the the aircraft look absolutely beautiful. Yeah, uh, you, you do sort of build uh, not an affection, but a, a kind of affinity with your aircraft when you're looking after one aircraft. You know, in an airline, it might be a fleet of fifty, and they're all pretty much the same, aren't they? Um, but in this, you, you get to know the aircraft really well, so yeah. you know its little quirks and everything, um, and you look after it. You know, we all at the end of a flight, we all spend time pampering the airplane, hoovering it, doing all the stuff, helping the flight attendant. It's not sort of okay. Here's the tech log. I'm off. Like it is in an airline, which yes. is great sometimes. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, we, we, we invest a lot of um, sort of emotional energy in, uh, and time in the aircraft, just yeah. keeping it well-fettled and well-looked after. Actually, one of so, James's questions but, yeah. touches on that. He, he asks, as, as a bizjet pilot versus an airline pilot, how much of the non-flying duties do you do, uh, like luggage handling, flight planning, refueling, et cetera, et cetera? Well, not the flight planning. That's done by our dispatch, which is obviously you know, very good at doing that stuff. Uh, all the overflight dip clearances and all the other stuff you have to do is done by, by TAG uh, flight ops. But in terms of the, the baggage, actually, is a, is a running sore. Baggage can be horrendously. Baggage reconciliation, making sure that they take off what they brought on and not mixing it with anybody else's at busy airports is a nightmare. But we've got, we got a technique in our, on our jet to get around that. So baggage, yeah, we do all that stuff. We load it ourselves. Uh, refueling, obviously, we do that. Um, so, yeah, your hand's on the whole time. Yeah. yeah. With the baggage, because we just walked through the, the actual departure lounge yeah. here, which is the most incredible thing. You literally walk... As if Roy has never been in a VIP department. <laughs> but it, it, it's just like one <laughs> VIP airport, and you can yeah. walk pretty much from the entrance to the jet with about 20 metres. Well, having got out of your car. Having got out of your yeah. car. Yeah. Uh, how can you lose it? You can't lose a bag. No, here it's not so bad. But you go to a busy airport, uh, uh, for example, uh, Nice or somewhere like that in summer, yeah. where there are loads of business, loads of luggage flying about, and the handing agent can sometimes get stuff mixed up um, with the best will in the world. So there's security issues, obviously, with that. Yeah. But also, you know, the passengers really don't like it if they get the other end and they haven't got their bags. I mean, it's yeah. reasonable. <laughs> so to, baggage reconciliation, as they call it, like keeping an eye on your bags, making sure they get on and get off the other end. Uh, and, and we're talking about multiple bags. I mean, these guys don't travel light, so we're talking about you know, 10, 12 big suitcases yeah. and hangers and goodness knows what. So, yeah, it's, that is probably the biggest, uh, the biggest pain of the lot, actually, yeah. just, just looking after the baggage. So, I mean, if, for example, Roy and I were now to go flying with you in one of these jets... Good luck. I mean, thank you very much. <laughs> you could take us out of the country... This is about the eighth time Rob's hinted that since we've got it. It's not getting it's not working, is it? No, no. no. You think I didn't notice? <laughs> <laughs> if we happen to. <laughs> no, my question is this. How easy is it just to leave the country in this sort of situation on, on a private jet without any kind of passport checks? I mean, if you... You could say that you're, you're not leaving the country. You're just flying to a d- destination within... Within these, oh, I see orders, what you mean. So, yeah. so you, you, you could, of course, you could. Yeah, you can get airborne and just say you're going to Glasgow and turn left and go to Caribbean or whatever. You, yeah, so you, of course, you could. Yeah, so, what's absolutely. what's to stop you and your passengers from doing that? Um, uh, nothing, nothing at all. That's what they want to do. I mean, they, they, they can do that. Well, I see what you're getting at. So, as I said, all the flights are pre-cleared. So, uh, customs and immigration know the passengers. That they know them pretty well anyway. They know their passport details and everything. So, they know who they are. Um, if you end up going to another country which you didn't intend, well, you have to have a flight plan for a start. So, mm-hmm. that, that would have to be refiled. Otherwise, air traffic wouldn't know what you're doing. So, you can't just sort of head up and using that analogy, go to Glasgow, turn left, go to the Caribbean. Um, that wouldn't really work because air traffic is going to say, well, what's the flight plan? Yeah. So you have to file a flight plan, obviously, for your destination. Yeah. You can divert from that. Of course you can, yeah. I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking about doing it. I'm not thinking about doing a drugs yeah. run. But it's not, it's not so, another criminal flight. Yeah, just, how difficult is it to actually smuggle yourself or some contraband across the border 
um, and land, especially if you're in a small aircraft, landing at an out of the way airstrip. It, well, it happens. Who, who is going to catch it? It happens. Yeah. It does happen. Yeah. Have you ever been involved? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> there was that case recently, actually, of an aircraft that landed here, coming in from Bogota, I think it was. Yeah. With about 500 kilos of, you know, um, uh, of cocaine or something. I don't. You know, it, it does yeah. happen. How um, much did you get for it? <laughs> <laughs> Just bought a very nice house. <laughs> no, it's, um, you know, of course it happens. I mean, obviously it does, you know. Um, inevitably, doesn't it? Criminal gangs get involved. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think, I think the network of customs and police around the world is so tight now, I think yeah. it's really hard to get away yeah. with. Yeah. So, put it this way, when that jet landed here, there was a lot of people, you know, asking them to help them with their inquiries. Right, saying. okay. So, yeah. Um, and sometimes you think, well, is that... Is that a clever thing to do, you know, to go directly from Bogota, which is probably the drug centre <laughs> yeah. with, you know, really? Anyway, yeah. well, probably, might not probably, not, to, probably not the smartest thing to do. You might not choose to land at Farnborough, but say if yeah. you landed somewhere else which wasn't so... Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Of course it could happen. Mm. Yeah, of course it could. I don't think it does very much. But, no. And, of course, when it does, it hits the news because, you know, it's, it's high profile. And everybody yeah. phones me up immediately and says, do is that you? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Funny how people ask yeah, this question, yeah. isn't it? Another question from James. I don't know if this is based on some personal experience. I suspect it might be. But um, it asks, <clears throat> if you have a VIP on board and for whatever they are problematic, won't sit down for landing, etc., what are your options? Right. This is, this is a really good question, actually. Um, I know people always say that, but that is actually a really good... Well done, Jim. Well done. Good one. <laughs> because it, it does happen. And at the end of the day... If it's, if it's a private aircraft, what I'm flying is completely private. It's not, it's not charter when you can be a little bit more forceful. Um, if it's their jet and they don't want to put a seatbelt on or they don't want to sit down, that is entirely down to them. All you can do is, or get the flight attendant to do, is say, I strongly recommend, and get, make sure that you witness them saying this, I strongly recommend you sit down and put your seatbelt on. But at the end of the day, it's their train set if they don't want to do that. And I've flown loads of passengers who will not wear a seatbelt. And I think it's... There's a bit of a role reversal in this business where they're normally the, the, the boss of a big corporations, very wealthy, very powerful. They, they do what they want and they don't like being told what to do. And this is just a way of sort of exerting some sort of pushback, some control that they won't do what they're told. See what I mean? Yeah. There is a role yeah. reversal. When they get on the jet, they're not in charge. Uh, okay. And so it's a way of sort of showing a bit of pushback. But, um, yeah, I've had, had a couple of occasions where they, they just uh, won't, sit, won't wear a seatbelt. It's very strange. Um, it is, really. And what about in, if you're in a smaller aircraft where you don't have cabin crew? and you've Well, got... again, then again, like in the Lear, um, he used to fly this chap um, down to Nice quite a bit who literally would never wear a seatbelt. I mean, he just didn't want to do that. But, um, I mean, if they got more difficult than just not wearing a seatbelt, so you've got, got, got a bit tanked up. Well, yeah, it does it, it get... T- yeah, I suppose I'm alluding to that flight I had across the North Sea. Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> no, if they get tagged up, that, that's... No, um, but th- that's... No, you sort of say, look, I really recommend... Because obviously, the, if we have to do uh, an abort on the runway, the brakes are pretty powerful. You'll be peeled off the windscreen, you know. I honestly recommend that you do wear a seatbelt. Yeah. Uh, and if they don't, then what can you do? Now, if, if, it's, if it's a commercial flight and it's a charter flight, then you can absolutely insist on it because mm. that is regulation. You know, commercial rules are different to private rules. Yeah. See what I mean? There is a. Um, you obviously, you tried your best to make sure it's a safe flight. I mean, I wouldn't have people standing around in the cabin on takeoff. I wouldn't no. have that. But if they don't wear a seatbelt, actually, how would I know? Yeah. But if people are being unruly, for example? Uh, yes, that doesn't happen so much on the jets. It happens a lot. Um, uh, the, the flight I'm, I think you're alluding to is the one I had years and years ago, taking oil rig workers back from uh, Norway to Aberdeen, which is a fairly regular run that we had. We had a contract with a drilling company. And these guys had been obviously on the lash in Stavanger the night before. Looked absolutely terrible. And I know I used to work in the old business. I know what it's like. So they looked absolutely terrible. They got aboard the aeroplane, and I set off for Aberdeen. So it was a three-hour flight or something in the in the uh, Piper Chieftain. And halfway across the North Sea, a, a fight breaks out because these guys, for some reason, they, they started fighting anyway. So it's it's a really lonely place to be in the you know above the North Sea at eight thousand feet with a fight going on, but and you're on your own, <laughs> oh, literally God. you're on your own. There's eight guys at the back having a punch up. <laughs> so um, and of course but that that airplane, it's easy to open the door because it's not pressurized, so they can easily open the door and fall out and go to work. I mean, so um, eventually it's, some kind of order is restored, yeah, and the, the, the two fighting parties are pulled apart. That's fine. Well, and but then, oh, by by, other, by then, yeah. yeah. I mean, but it is quite scary. So anyway, so I then do the old trick that everybody knows that you get nice and high, 
hopefully into the sunshine. So you get above the cloud layer, into the sunshine, where it's a little bit warmer. You turn the heat up, and you put the prop slightly out of sync, so you get this kind of wow, wow, this kind of noise. And guaranteed, you look back and they're falling asleep. That's amazing. And it works pretty well. Anyway, so then I phoned, I called ahead. Um, as soon as I could, have got in range of Aberdeen and the police met these guys on arrival and they, they were arrested and sacked by the company. But yeah, wow. that was, but it's, it's never happened to me. I'm sure it has to other guys. Um, on a jet, you tend to get a better, get a yeah. better clientele. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, I, I, you know. Yeah, we, I can see not, not roustabouts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, our band came back from uh, a tour in Japan. And the last day, I think we played Tokyo. And essentially what happened is we just didn't go to bed. Yeah. We, we went all the way through after the show to a party, to a pub, to a club, to like suddenly it was like, let's just pick up our bags <laughs> and get on the plane. We nearly missed the plane because we were trying to get more drinks. <laughs> anyway, we got the plane. Roll. We, 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 oh, yeah. Rock and roll. It, <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't a private jet. It was in the oh. back of, like, we were right in the economy. <laughs> and we literally all sat down and slept. We sat down in the seat, slept all the way back to Heathrow. And the only person who woke up was the drummer. <laughs> the, the, the flight attendant said... Oh, we didn't want to disturb you because we just assumed you guys had been working on the oil rigs. <laughs> <laughs> you mean they yeah. didn't recognise you? No, no. How did that make you feel? Sure. Yeah, well, that yeah. now when you say about the oil yeah. rigs, yeah, and we've done quite a few gigs in Aberdeen as well at well, Aberdeen you, Airport. You know what it's like. You see yeah. that yeah. that airport bar is yeah, oh, quite... it's legendary. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but uh, yeah, there was another occasion that I took some. I think they were U two roadies. I can't remember now. Uh, from uh, Rotterdam down to Marseille. And uh, so I meet these guys, and they're, they're you know, just really great guys, having good fun. We get on board the aeroplane, and then I smell this this little sweet, smoky smell, and I look around, and they've all got these massive spliffs on the ground. <laughs> and I said, look, guys, I really don't mind, you know, but I'm going to be completely stoned. <laughs> but by the time we get to Marseille, I won't know which way's up. So, and they thought it was hilarious, and they put their, put their joints out, and it was fine. But I thought, you know, th- three and a half hours of this, and I'll be it. <laughs> Anybody's. Do you have a worst passenger experience or client experience? Which you can mention. Or <laughs> well, um, better still, that you can't yeah. mention. In, in terms of like bad, bad experience. Oh, yeah. Not, uh, uh, honestly, no, I can't think of anything that was, was really that, that bad. Um, I've taken interesting, you know, I've taken interesting guys, like that, that uh, lifer that I took to um, Suriname. It was uh, that was quite an interesting flight, but I mean, he was as good as gold. I can't think of anything that's been really probably the worst thing was that that fight over the North Sea. Yeah, yeah, that was actually quite scary. Yeah, what was the life of story? Mm. Well, th- this was a guy. The Home Office approached us about um, eight or nine years ago now to take this guy who uh, was a Surinamese citizen who was, was doing two life sentences in the UK for murder. So this is out of Leeds because Wakefield he was in Wakefield Prison, which is up near Leeds. Um, so we go up to Leeds, uh, meet this guy, put him on the jet and take him to uh, Paramaribo, which is the capital of Suriname. And before we do the flight, we have a big sort of chat about how we're going to manage this because he's huge, this guy. I mean, he's big. Um, and if he breaks loose in the aeroplane, you know, halfway across the Atlantic, this is, you know, what, how are we going to mitigate this? So we strip the aeroplane of anything that could possibly be used as a weapon. So the lavatory areas are stripped of everything. Because he'd used a toilet brush, hadn't he? Yeah, well, he'd done the usual sort of cons trick of melting the end of a bit of plastic and, you know, it melts into a really sharp point. And, and, you know, he's a a bad guy. But anyway, so we get there and the Black Mariahs arrive and he he gets out and he's in his gimp suit. He's all manacled together like this and there's police everywhere and we've got four security guards who are equally nasty uh, on the aeroplane as well as a Home Office representative and all this stuff. We take off and we get to Suriname. What, what were you flying? Uh, that was a, a 7X, Falcon yeah. 7X, a uh, charter, obviously. Um, and actually, he was as good as gold, you know, because a lot of these guys, they've they, they got two sides, and I'd be like, you know, really pleasant, a little bit simple or horrid. And if we got him on a good day, I guess, yeah. anyway. But the funny thing was, when we got to the airport, which is in the middle of the jungle, uh, the Home Office had said, yeah, when you get there, don't worry, it's all been arranged, there'll be, you know, there'll be officials to meet you and, and take this chap away. And no, we get there, there's literally no one around. I mean, it's <laughs> stifling hot, middle of the jungle. Uh, so we open the door and I said, well, what do we do with this guy now? 
<laughs> so she says, well, we'll just let him go. So he's now changed into a, a jeans and a T-shirt. Because he had been chained. He'd been shackled. They'd been and shackled. Shackled, shackled the whole... Uh, and, and the sort of orange, you know, prison suit. Yeah. That was really high security. Yeah. I mean, it leads to helicopters and goodness knows what. Anyway, so we let him go, and he just wanders off across the apron. <laughs> and that was it. I mean, you know, it's good to see that there's, there's cock-ups at the home office. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so so we, we expected, like, you know, a, some sort of police presence or something. It, it, you know, no one told us where to park. I mean, literally, the place is deserted, which is part where we thought was appropriate. Opened the door, and he wandered off. <laughs> uh, I guess he... So he was free? Yeah, well, the home office said, look, we've done our bit. We got him home. Um... If they can't organise a reception committee, that's not our problem. So, so I mean, off he went. Yeah. As a British taxpayer, I'm just going to put the question <laughs> out there. Why does this guy get a private jet? Well, but simply because no one would... T- airlines didn't want to take him. British airlines don't fly to Suriname. It's a Dutch colony, I think, or a strong Dutch connection, isn't it? Mm. And even KLM only do it twice a week or something. So, that, you know, and they weren't interested. They didn't want to pick this guy up. So, basically, yeah, you've, it's a very good question. <laughs> why, why did we pick up the tap? Um, but, uh, and he loved it, didn't he? He loved the flight. Yeah, he was great. So, of course, you know, we, at the end, we've got this group, I've got this group photo somewhere of him. Yeah, it's uh, in the book. And, and, yeah, that's right, there, yeah. it is. And I'm flying with this mate of mine, uh, Pascal, a French guy, and uh, th- this prisoner is saying, oh, we must keep in touch. <laughs> so, so I, I, I immediately gave him Pascal's email. <laughs> <laughs> Pascal, if you, if you listen to some song, yeah. so I said, "Yeah, let's keep in touch." That's the email address. That's but just it, it was a it was a funny trip. But you, but you had some dodgy government contracts, one involving potentially gold bullion. I think that you were. There were some South Africans involved, some Spaniards. Oh, no that, that was all, no, that was all about, completely about board. Didn't sound um, it to me. No. <laughs> well, has seven years gone by? Yeah, I think I'm probably... <laughs> no, um, we, we did a series of flights, actually, where we would meet uh, South African Airways jumbo at Heathrow. So we fly in the Lear to Heathrow, park right next to the jumbo. Uh, two, two guys, really big, burly South African security... Uh, what was that? Is it Boss? South African Security Agency? Anyway, they, yeah. they'd get off, huge guys hard as nails, with a couple of briefcases. And they'd get on the, on the Lear, and we'd take them down to, I think it was Bilbao. Um, and when we landed, they then got in a fast car, all pre-cleared. Nobody, nobody came in to sort of check passports or anything. So I basically got off the jet, into a car, disappeared for three or four hours, and came back without the briefcases. And we reckon uh, that it was sort of backdoor payment to France for something, maybe Mirage. <laughs> uh, this is in the height of apartheid, isn't it? Right. Mirage spares or military... Anyway, it was definitely gold because yeah. uh, I tried to pick up one of these cases and the handle almost came off. You know, <laughs> you, you know in, in films you see people sort of tossing gold yes. bars around. Like, yes. Trust me, it's heavy. So I picked up this slimline Samsonite and it was incredibly heavy. So I'm sure it wow. was gold. Um, so the, but that was all... All cleared at a pretty high level, pretty mm. high government. Level. Doesn't mean it's not dodgy, though, does it? Just yeah, well, government's, <laughs> government's not dodgy. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I've forgotten about that one. Yeah, I, I, I love these stories. Um, another question from James. Oh, it's, what's the longest range of a biz jet? How high, fast, etc., compared to standard airliners? Would you go? Uh, so, range, well, they vary. I mean, you know, Lear's up to 2,500 miles, although Lear, you don't see many Lear's these days. Um, I suppose, realistically, anything sort of 3,500 nautical to 8,000. I mean, the, the new Global Express will do 8,000 miles. Goodness me. Uh, wow. Which is tremendous. Yeah. Uh, I so, do you, is there a secondary crew? You'd, you'd have to, you, yeah. and they have to be sort of configured in such a way that you've got two crews, because yeah. that's like we're talking about an 18-hour flight. You yes. know, that, that's ridiculous. I, mean, I can't imagine anything worse, personally. But, no. um, but they will technically do that. So, but most jets, I would say, sort of three and a half to six and a half, seven thousand miles, that, that kind of range. And what sort of height are you wow. flying? Are you flying above the... Yeah, range? generally, oh, they've got great performance. You know, they're all overpowered, all of them. Yeah. So we, we're normally up at 43, 45, 47,000 feet, that kind of thing, which has an advantage that you can get direct tracks. So, for example, going across the Atlantic, you don't have to follow the track patterns that are published every day. You can just go in a straight line because you're above all that stuff. Yeah. So uh, in terms of routing, it's pretty good. So what's, um, what sort of heights are you talking about? 43. Oh, wow. 45, that kind of height. And how fast uh, are you going? Mm-hmm. And speed-wise, yeah, they're a little bit faster. Well, I guess much, much the same as, as airlines, or eight six, eight seven max, something like that. Some of the newer ones, point nine, they're pretty quick. Yeah, um, yeah, oh, they're just great. 
They're beautiful aircraft. Yeah. You know, that's, they are lovely aircraft. What about the way they're decked out inside? I mean, are the cockpits or the flight decks equally luxurious? Uh, not, not really luxurious. I mean, they're obviously state-of-the-art. I mean, they're, they're 10, 15 years ahead of airliners, I would say, in, in technology, yeah. mostly. So they're, they're very, uh, very high-tech. Um, they, they still can't make a decent seat, though. <laughs> I've never been in an aircraft that's got a decent seat really? for about three hours ago. Like, oh. In spite of the fact they'll tell you it's designed by Porsche and all the rest of it, you know, oh, the, really? I don't think they are. Yeah. It's the last minute, a couple of seats, put them in. Um, cabins, yeah, they can vary. I mean, they, they can be fabulous. I mean, you can, you can spend literally millions of dollars on a cabin, you know, depending on, on how you want it to take time. So, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. So, uh, to a lot of people, um, you know, it, it's an extension of their home, so they have it, you know, it pretty luxurious, um, but very, very comfortably furnished. How, how, much, how much is, like, you, you were saying about how you get very attached to your jet. Does yeah. it have a name? <laughs> that's a good question. It doesn't, but it should have. Yeah. That's well, when, it's, when, it's right misbe- when it misbehaves, it has yeah. a name. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, um, but no, it doesn't curious enough, no. Th- does it misbehave? Well, no, they're pretty good. I mean, they're, they're all, they're, they're high electronic jets. All of these yeah. things, like all modern jets are, you know, they're highly electronic. So, uh, yeah, they have sort of hissy fits from time to time. And, um, you know, very often the best thing to do is just shut it down, just turn everything off, sometimes even to take the batteries off, you know, just disconnect everything. Not, not whilst airborne. Not whilst, no, it would well, no. be fun to get to. <laughs> um, and, then, uh, and then put them back together again and build it up, and, and it's gone, the gremlin's gone. So, yeah, yeah they, they can, and that's awkward when you've got passengers on board. Yeah. But they, they tend to accept. Yeah. They are getting more and more reliable. Each, each software update kind of stabilises things a lot. Um, so, yeah, um, we, ours is actually pretty good. And uh, what is your favourite bit of kit? In the, like your newest state of the art, you were saying when we were out there, how you've got these head-up displays of which can show you what's on the ground... Yeah, so, so a, a lot of um, a lot of these new aircraft. Actually, ours doesn't have a head-up display, but most of them do. So um, the head-up display, EVS, which is enhanced vision system stuff, it's all it, it's all stuff to give you more situational awareness, um, and, it, and and it's phenomenal. You know, the, the, your situational awareness as you fly these days is just tremendous. Why would you um, need that that more than an airliner, or is it just because they're so advanced? You, you don't really. No, uh, it's just that they bizjet manufacturers tend to pioneer the stuff, which then goes into. I mean, airlines have had HUDs for a while. Don't get me wrong; of course they have. Um, the military have had them for forty years. Yeah. So airlines do have them, and I think it was Alaska Airlines in the states have pioneered a lot of this stuff uh, in America anyway. But uh, yeah, they do have them. The seven eight seven's got HUDs and everything. HUDs is a fairly old hat now. Um, but we have synthetic vision, so you're actually looking at a 3D picture of what's going on around you on the screens. Wow. Uh, you know, it, it's phenomenal. In terms of awareness of where you are with terrain and everything, from a, d- a terrain database, it's just tremendous. Mm. Yeah. One um, of the scariest tales in your book is, goes back to your Learjet days, because, because you're such an experienced a skilled pilot. You just, were, just be lucky. <laughs> you were given the job of doing a recertification flight, if that's the correct term, on the Learjet. Where oh you goodness! Had to yeah, put um, into stalls, etc., etc. Yeah, yeah, that was that, that sounded was, horrendous. That was fairly hairy. Yeah. So the CAA, in their infinite wisdom, decided that every CAA renewal, which was three years, you had to take an aeroplane up and deliberately stall it. Uh, goodness, I, I can't imagine why you'd want to do that. But that, that's pretty, so you had to check that actually stalled on schedule to the knot and all the rest of it. Yeah. So we, we went. We got everyone to do this the stalling test. Uh, it all went horribly wrong. Probably did not hand fisted fly. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, I'm flying with this guy Martin. We're up there, and uh, we do really careful calculations. We know what the C of G is. We know what the weight of the aircraft is. We know exactly when the, to the knot when it should stall, when the st- stick shaker and all the warning stuff should go off, and when it should actually stall and all that. And the, the Lear has a, a stick pusher as well. So the stick shakers like to warn you you're getting close to the stall. And the stick pusher just rams the stick forward to get you out of the stall, basically. So it had that, that device. So anyway, we do all this stuff. Um, we briefed it really carefully amongst ourselves. And we get airborne. Sorry, we, we, we slow down, level flight, decrease in speed very, very slowly. And we watch the speed. Yeah, that's all good. That's all good. 100 knots, 98, 97 or something. And then at 96, I think, we should have had the stick shaker come in. Uh, which it did, and so that's fine. We took that one off, and then whatever, I can't remember the fix now, 93 or something, this should, we should have had the stick push, which, you know, forces the control column forward and gets you out of the stall. Um, and nothing happened. And then the, the wing stalled for real <laughs> and flicked. 
So we then in the situation where we're very low on speed and the aircraft is literally flicked almost upside down. Uh, and just then the stick pusher kicked in. Oh. So we're now sort of in this, in this extreme attitude with the stick pusher kicking off and it's all hairy and we lose about, I can't remember, 10,000 feet or something. It's quite alarming. How high were you? Uh, high. Yeah, you don't do the slow down. So I think we're <laughs> 16,000 feet or something. We didn't expect oh it to go bad, but it, the thing with the Lear is it's got a very... It's a, there's not one here to show you, but it's it got a very, very thin wing. Very thin. Even bugs, you know, like squash flies on the leading edge will affect its stall performance. It's a very critical wing. And so when this didn't go as it should have done per schedule, it just basically flicked, uh, and we were still kind of upside down. So what, what, what happened? What happens when it flicks and then the well, pusher happens? Well, so that... so, well it, it, I'll cover the sequence of events now, but we kind of got to this point, and then the stick pushed, it basically yeah. pushed the nose down even more. We didn't quite go through a, a barrel roll, but we kind of cut uh, to that position probably, and then it pushed, and then we pulled out of it. I can't remember yeah. exactly what happened, but it all happened at the wrong time, so the sequence is all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and and but then we recovered from the flight, and I say to Martin, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> and he says, oh, no, I've got to change my trousers. Or something. It's like... It's like but, but it, it, I think it's bonkers. They don't do it anymore. But I think it's bonkers to insist that you do something to an aeroplane that it's designed not to do. So it's designed yeah. not. It's got all these protections to stop you stalling the wing of a Lear because it is quite critical. Yeah. And then you go and do it. And if you're a test pilot, I flew once with Pete Reynolds, who's the chief test pilot of Learjet in the states. Guy, he's a legend. But he could fly so precisely. You know, he probably would have got away with it because we're a little bit, you know, we're not test pilots, we're ordinary line pilots having a go at test pilot stuff, essentially. So when it goes wrong, it's no surprise. Why, when an aircraft wing stalls, is it always the left wing that drops? No, not necessarily. Not, not the jet. With a, with a uh, propeller aircraft, obviously, you've got all the torque, the torque okay. all, all, all the, the torque and slipstream effect yeah. that can affect things. But on a jet, it's just a clean wing, isn't okay. it? So uh, it's, sometimes it might, one wing might be slightly rigged differently to the other. Maybe yeah. it's got a little bit, as I say, flies or something on it, yeah. you know, which will make one drop. Um, sometimes they drop quite benignly. The Lear definitely does not. <laughs> when it goes, it just literally, it's gone. Um, um, the Lear was built as a fighter originally. It was a, it was a Swiss fighter design. That, that's the history of it, yeah. Goodness. So, you know, it's carved out of steel, as I said, and it's, it's, um, it's got a very high-performance wing, so, which is great. So high speed, mm. never a problem. You know, mm. CA used to worry about the high speed of it. That's not a problem. The problem is actually the low speed, and, and obviously there have been accidents over the years with that. Yeah. But yeah, that was, that was. But the funny thing about that was the autopilot never worked particularly well before that episode. But after that, it worked absolutely brilliantly. <laughs> and I, I think what we did in, in that kind of fairly violent flick, yes. I think we just jiggled something. And yes. after that, so we got something out of it. <laughs> so, that sounds quite least, a worry to me. Yeah, at least then the autopilot worked better. But, yeah. uh, that's my favourite thing about the other aircraft. When it goes wrong, you just basically turn it on, turn it off again. Yeah, no. <laughs> turn it on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Your, your other great passion, I think I'm right in saying, is seaplanes, isn't it, and float planes? You yeah, but I've never done about, it. I've never done it. You gave a talk about Waltham about the restoration of the... Is it the SE5A? Or yeah, the well, the, well, I gave a very brief, brief talk. It's meant to be an intro to something else, but it turned out to be the sole axe. Um, <laughs> About the Schneider Trophy. Yeah, I've always yeah. had a fascination with seaplanes. And I've said to my wife, Amanda, that you know, if when we win huge numbers on the lottery, I'm going to immediately to Alaska because I want to do a float plane rating and I want to do it there. I don't, wow. want, to, I don't want to do it in Florida. I'm not interested. I want to do it in the mountains, in the lakes. Oh, wow. With guys that really know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, because I've always had a fascination with seaplanes. Um, Interesting. But uh, never, I have been in one actually in the States. I flew in an um, amphibian aircraft quite a bit. But I think if you live in an area like Alaska or Canada or Northern America where there are lots of lakes, yeah. how can you not have one? Mm, mm. You know, and most houses do, don't they? they? Yeah. You, you, well, my you, uncle was a, was a bush pilot actually in Canada. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. So you know exactly. So if yeah. you want to go camping for the weekend, get in the plane, just go to a lake you've never been to before. Yeah. Camp. I mean, how fantastic. Yeah. So, but what's yeah. the story with the SE? Is it the SE5A or the SE6B? Yeah. SE5A. Uh, SE5. I'm not directly involved in it. It's a colleague yeah. of mine uh, at um, at Tag here who's, who's rebuilding a replica. Wow. Um, so I don't know how far. I haven't seen him for a while. I'm not sure where he's got for this. But this is the SE5 was obviously a, a very very fast seaplane for the Schneider Trophy. Yeah. Led into the S6, which basically won the trophy in 1932, three, yeah. which led on to the Spitfire. So you know, it's got that kind of history. Yeah. But, now, the SC5 is something quite different. It's a yeah. First World War biplane fighter, I think, isn't it? Oh, it's, no, it's, yeah. so, it's, it's, it's S5, I'm sorry, yeah, S5, yeah. not SE5. No, that was me, yeah. I got that yeah. wrong. 
But uh, no, fantastic. I, I love this. I, I love that era as well because the whole thing with the Schneider Trophy, if you look at it from 1913 to 1933, the 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 the, the technological advancements were just phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, it went from literally things that could do 40 miles an hour in 1913 yeah. to uh, over 420 miles an hour with floats, you know, with sodium-cooled valves and high-powered R-series engines. I mean, really powerful engines in, in what, 17 years or something? Wow. Right? Yeah. So um, it's, it's a fascinating period. But this colleague of mine is rebuilding a, a replica S5. To fly? Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, brilliant. I think we're in contact yeah. with them. Are we? Yeah. I, I mean, a really we, good story, yeah, actually. Yeah. We, they, we've been invited down to, to check it out. So. Great. Where yeah. are, they, are they on the handle? Somewhere down there? Uh, uh, I, th- I think bits were being built in, in France. I can't, I can't recall. I haven't, I haven't actually seen Will yeah, for a we'll while. Yeah, we'll go there. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> if only but, we knew somebody had a jet. Yeah. Could <laughs> <to> <laughs> yeah. How would we do that? <laughs> let me think. Let me think. <laughs> <laughs> we know this dodgy guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But there is actually an S6, uh, at, I think the only one in the country, down at the um, uh, Sodom Museum yeah. in Southampton. Oh, which yes. Is, which is, I went there. It's a really good museum. It's actually. amazing yeah, museum. It is fantastic. Yeah. It's yeah. got loads about that, uh, the, yeah. about those races there. Yeah. You, it's a beautiful thing. Really? Yeah, fantastic. Oh, it's and a fantastic that, that one there is, yeah. I, I believe, it is the winning, uh, the one that actually won the final trophy. Yeah. So it's got a huge yeah. heritage. Yeah. Should be yeah. flying, though. All these things should be flying. Yeah. yeah, rather than stuck in museums, yeah. I think. It wouldn't, uh, yeah, that would be but, the perfect world, yeah. wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? But a replica is yeah. better than nothing, I suppose. But yeah. uh, Will's very well. He'll tell you about it. I'm sure he's very keen to get it done for. Uh, I think the S5 first flew in 20, 1927, so get it ready for 2027, which will be oh, 100 wow. years, which is phenomenal wow. if you think about it. Do you think we'll still be going on the podcast? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <definitely. Yep. laughs> we haven't got the well, yeah. right. It's only 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Okay. One thing I didn't ask you was the most famous passengers you've taken. Yeah, what, yeah. Well, well, who can like, you take? I, I don't really name drop actually because you, you don't in this business. And we've okay, all, we've okay. all thrown a lot, lot of. Cards. But if you could name drop, <laughs> I know you can't. Say? But if you could, um, I think probably the most infamous was, um, and I can say this now because he's no longer with us, was uh, Adnan Khashoggi, who was the arms dealer. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, no, he wasn't. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so he was a very, very wealthy arms dealer. Remember back in the eighties and things, involved yeah. in all kinds of you know, uh, bad things. And his jet, I think, he had a corporate DC nine or something at the time, yeah. and had broken down. And we picked him up from Paris to take him somewhere. Uh, and he sort of looked at the Learjet like it was something he'd trodden in. <laughs> he sort of wasn't, wasn't used getting these little jets. Really? No. But no, he was very. Uh, Infamous. Well, what about celebs? Have you ever flown the uh, indie rock band Scouting for Girls? Who? <laughs> <laughs> I know you know who well, they are. It's your I daughter. If, if, exactly. <laughs> Else would be. Yeah. Oh, that was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Crushed. Crushed. <laughs> <laughs> well, well yeah. I think that day's got to happen. I hope so. That's what I I'm saying. So. Nobody hopes hope. more than me. Yeah. Tell you that much. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. So do you know where your next flight will be? I, I, I don't, actually. Um, no, no, I don't know. It's all, it's all fairly quiet at the moment, but something will, will pop up. Um, is it quite a disruptive lifestyle? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, the, this is the big, the big difference between the, this and the airlines, really, and mm. that's why it doesn't suit a lot of guys. Now, I, must admit, I struggle with it because it is disruptive. Um, the payoff is that you do some fantastic trips. You fly lovely aeroplanes with a dedicated crew that you know really well. They're, they're friends of yours after a while. Yeah. We get on as a team. It's great. And you, uh, and you go to really nice places and spend three or four days and come back. So yeah. that's to like. What's not to like is it is disruptive. Um, ask my wife. You know, <laughs> there, are, there are times when you just can't make things that you promised you would do. And you know, I've missed school plays and yeah. all, all the stuff, sports days and family events. Some people um, would say you're very fortunate. Well, <laughs> some, of, some of the family events, maybe. But, yeah. um, but yeah. not so. so. So that's the downside. Well, in airline, obviously, it runs on rails, doesn't it? You know, you know, when you're on, when you're off for months. Yeah, I think I'm right. So was with us anyway for months yeah. ahead yeah so yeah. um yeah that that's so it's horses for courses you, yeah. do, you, you know you do what you like how many other crews are there that fly this jet uh so uh, on on this jet so we've got uh, three pilots two captains and a first officer and one flight attendant and uh one engineer and that's it so that's the team yeah, yeah. wow wow so yeah very small team yeah well look you've flown me in your cherokee love that 
Really looking forward to the next yeah. day. Yeah, probably have to do that again. Actually, that was really good fun. Yeah, and really looking forward to the next day. <laughs> <laughs> How can I miss that? <laughs> Mark, thank you so much for talking. Absolute pleasure. Excuse me. Thank you. It's been great. Absolute pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, great. Really good. Thank you. There is actually one last question. Oh yeah. Which I just saw. It was it was from James as well. Are you jealous of triple seven pilots? <laughs> Or Puma Pilots. <laughs> yeah, no. Go on. Go on. Triple seven Be as rude well, as you like. Well, um, I'm jealous of their access to the cheese board from first class. My <laughs> wife is a BA person for 30 years, and so she knows all about that. But, um, yeah. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's put him in his place. Brilliant. Well, a huge thanks to Mark for those amazing stories and for the insight into the corporate aviation world or the biz jet world. And do look out for his book, Life in a Tin. I mean, the stuff in there, we, we barely scratched the surface in that interview, but the stuff in there that will make your jaws drop and probably hang open, they're just brilliant. So a huge thanks to Mark. Look out for Life in a Tin by Mark Bloisbrook. That's B-L-O-I-S hyphen Brook. So uh, we look forward to seeing you for, or look forward to your joining us for the next podcast. And if you'd like to listen to any of all of our podcasts so far, you'll find them on our website, toplandinggear.com, or wherever you normally get your podcasts. And do subscribe if you can. It's completely free, of course. And let us know anything or anyone you'd like us to feature. We'll try and make it happen. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Top Landing Gear. And please do email us with your questions for our expert, James, at info at toplandinggear.com. That's info at toplandinggear.com with two Gs. And we're really looking forward to our next podcast. Check out the socials to see when they're all dropping. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening and bye for now.